Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. This podcast is focused on patient perspectives on how R&D organizations can better operationalize studies and prepare patients for clinical trials. From the 2023 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Conference. For more information on the Patients as Partners Conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, visit patientsaspartnersconference.com or theconferenceforum.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Good morning. (laughs) Um, First, I want to thank everyone for coming out today. I know it's early. A lot of people have traveled from all over to get here. I think it is important to start this discussion by saying that, you know, many times we don't recognize the preparation and what it takes to show up especially at events like this. Um, Many of us on this panel have been dealing with ailments or just challenges the last few weeks that have, you know, for many people, they would have thrown in the towel. So I just want to thank my panelists first for giving me the strength to continue on, even though I'm not 100%, but I am going to channel my inner Beyonce and (laughs) perform and be here today to really highlight um, true heroes and warriors when I think of clinical trials and just showing up and showing out. So thank you all. So we are here today because I had thought, well, let me take a step back. Last year was my first time participating in Patients as Partners. And while it was extremely valuable and insightful, I felt that, you know, a voice was missing. We talk about the patient experience and what they go through when thinking about accessing healthcare and clinical trials, but I thought it was important to hear firsthand from them. You know, we speak about what we have been taught, what we have learned, anecdotes, but it's, it's extremely important to hear firsthand knowledge and experiences of those who are living with this day to day and really trying to not only advocate for themselves and advocate from them others for others. So this panel, I am not going to be the highlight. I really want my panelists to provide insights as to their experiences with participating in clinical trials, the challenges they face when thinking about healthcare, and just overall what it takes to show up and show out each and every day. So I'm gonna have my panelists introduce themselves. And in your introduction, can you please share what propelled you or motivated you to be a part of a clinical trial? But then also, what propelled you to be an advocate, not only for yourself, but for others? So I'm gonna start with you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. Um, I participated in a clinical trial related to sleep apnea. It was a new sleep apnea medication. And one of the things that certainly uh, prompted me to participate in clinical trials is because, one, the CPAP machine was not working for me. It was not doing me any good. Uh, But two, I felt that it was extremely important for me as as an African-American man to participate in clinical trials to, to make my experience part of the part of research. Um, many of you are, I'm sure, are researchers, and you, you probably understand the the percentage, the small percentage of African Americans who actually participate in clinical trials. So I felt that it was important for me as an advocate to 
and make sure that my name and my, my statistics, my data, is included in that process. Uh, I live with lupus. Uh, in addition to that, a number of other comorbidities, uh, one, the sleep apnea that I mentioned, but also fibromyalgia. And fibromyalgia and sleep apnea tend to, um, it's a double-edged sword in, in a sense, because if I don't sleep, then I have fibromyalgia pain. And uh, so it's extremely important that a new, new drugs be established, if, it's not, if not for fibromyalgia, new drugs for sleep apnea. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me here on the panel. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, my motivation for being a participant in the clinical trial that I am <clears throat> currently still in is my children. My motivation was my children. I was diagnosed with uh, stage three C triple negative breast cancer at the age of 36 years old, not even two years ago, with no known family medical history. So I realized in that time period, in a very short time period of processing the information that I'm dealing with advanced cancer at 36 years old, that the triple negative breast cancer space is very limited as far as therapeutic regimens and not having um, an actual uh, medication to prevent recurrence. And I understand as a, I am also a healthcare professional by trade, I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant, so I understand the, the, the importance of clinical trials and clinical research data and how that moves and drives treatment regimens for years and decades to come. So when, as I said, my, my specialization was emergency medicine. I'm not in breast oncology, but I realized in a short time period that there was just not enough for women in this space, in particular, not many um, you know, research data that was uh, also inclusive of black women. Black people are not represented in clinical trials. We are, um, you know, the, the rates are less than 3%. And so I felt like I needed to do something and I wanted my body to be studied. I wanted my biology to be studied, not just for myself, but for my daughters and also people who look like me so that we can come up with specialized treatment regimens to know, okay, this medication was tested on someone of this particular background with this particular DNA or this particular bio bio biological composition for other women to years to come. So even though it may not directly impact me or have benefit for me, I realize that what I'm doing is so much greater than myself because this is my medical trust fund as I've coined the term for my children and for my children's children. I have three daughters, they will have breast soon and I do not want them to have breast cancer if I can, if I can help it. And so for me, it was not just a decision for myself, it was for everyone else who may look like me. So that was my motivation for that. Hi everyone, my name is Katie Doble. Um, lovely to see you guys. And thank you for having us here today and thank you for the work that you do. Um, at 31 years old, I was first diagnosed with ocular melanoma, a rare form of melanoma that affects six in a million. And during the treatment of that, um, I was told there was a less than 2% chance of metastatic disease. And about a year and a half later, I fell into that 2% category. And two days later, my boyfriend proposed. 
So while I vacillated between planning my funeral in my head and planning a wedding to the man I loved, my father, who was a physician in Omaha, Nebraska, was speaking to con uh, doctors all over the country trying to find us something that bought us more hope. My first oncologist, when we asked her about clin clinical trials, she said, well, that would be really expensive. I was given 16 months to live and we kind of thought that was it. And so thanks to my dad's persistence, I got into my first clinical trial at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. And I spent my 30s in and out of clinical trials. Um, a total of four, we probably explored double that. And I like to call myself the poster child of clinical trials. Um, I had trials in New York City, in Denver where I reside, and at UPMC in Pittsburgh, which was my most recent trial. I responded really well to that treatment. It was till therapy, um, with the exception of one tumor that kept growing that my doctor kept calling the festering problem. So I named the tumor Uncle Fester. And um, a year and a half ago, uh, September 17th, 2021, um, he wanted to go in and remove Uncle Fester and all remaining tumor uh, tumors from my liver. And so I had a major operation a year and a half ago, and I woke up and heard the words, Katie, you are med. No evidence of disease. So um, it's been, woohoo, it's been an amazing journey. And I am so grateful for, for my father. Um, I'm grateful for my husband now of eight years. And um, I, I speak about this because I know that I had an advantage and that not everybody has my dad as their dad who can help navigate. And so I think it's important for people to understand their options. I think it's important for people to get second opinions. And um, I think I was feeling a little off my game as a patient since it's been a year and a half. So I actually ended up in the ER last night until about three in the morning. Um, and so I tell that one because I might be little off today, I'm exhausted. But two, because as a patient, even when you become a survivor, it's sort of relentless. Um, so it turns out I potentially have a hernia on my diaphragm and I'm fine. But um, it's just, it's always kind of an uphill battle and it's important to share our stories so that we can make it easier and better for the patients who come after us. So thank you again for the work you do and for having us here today. COVID, it really catapulted the need to, you know, have access to clinical trials outside of traditional sites or academic medical institutions. You know, we have heard the term decentralized clinical trials, telehealth, telemedicine, and all of these different, you know, terms to really speak to taking medicine or taking clinical trials and allowing access outside of the academic medical institution. And so I would like to hear from the pan panelists, just in terms of what are your thoughts on this? You know, while us as researchers or experts may feel like, yes, we're doing a great thing, you know, allowing or meeting patients where they're at, allowing access when access may not be there, I really want to hear your thoughts on this and if you have ever participated in a clinical trial that had aspects of this. And so I'll start with you, Katie. Yes, so I, when I first enrolled at Sloan Kettering, there was no possibility of getting blood work drawn in Denver. 
Um, so for the first five weeks of the trial, I actually stayed in New York, and then after that I flew back every month for what I called my drug deal, to pick up my medication, <laughs> give them my blood, have my scans. Um, I had a liver biopsy, even though I had just had a liver biopsy. Um, every hospital wants their own tissue, and every hospital wants to take the blood themselves. And as a patient who's traveling thousands of miles, it's very, very costly. So one of the perks of the pandemic was we were kind of forced to reevaluate this. So with UPMC, they started to be a little bit more lenient and it whenever possible, they allowed me to get scans done at, at UC Health, get my blood work done locally. And it just made, I mean, it saved us thousands of dollars, but then also you're taking time off work as a patient to go to the hospital and when you have to, travel to get there and then when you have to travel a day early because you have to get the COVID test before you can go into the hospital, it's just, it, it compounds and it becomes really, really overwhelming. So anything that has been done to help is certainly appreciated by my family. I don't know, oh, we're good. Um, but yeah, it's made a huge difference and thankfully uh, post COVID, I think that hospitals are starting to realize, okay, that actually worked. We did that, it worked. Um, and those are the little conveniences that can make a huge difference for people who are trying to live as normal lives as possible. Um, I am not a parent. I, as a parent, I can't even imagine. You're, that's a, a lot more responsibility. I'm just a dog mom. Um, and so, but all of that stuff makes it easier. So, yeah. And I appreciate you sharing, Katie, that you had to fly back and forth and you had to pay to fly to seek care. So I really want that to sink in because many people do not have that opportunity to continue to fly back between Denver and New York to seek treatment. And that is a barrier right there. And I'll just share that at the Walgreens Boots Alliance, what we are really trying to do is provide access to those communities that do not have access. You know, Walgreens has over 9,000 stores. 78% of Americans live within five miles of uh, Walgreens. And so what we are really doing is trying to provide care and access to those communities that are not able to, you know, travel to different clinical trial sites, travel to get their blood work drawn, and now, you know, really creating that engagement. So Latoya, you are unique in that you are a healthcare professional. So you know both sides of the coin in terms of conducting telemedicine and telehealth and being having to be a, a patient on that side. So can you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure, absolutely. Um, coincidentally, um, <laughs> I worked in ER for 10 years, but I just rejoined the workforce and now I'm working in telemedicine. I worked the last four nights actually, so um, I'm just running on coffee right now uh, on top of getting kids to school. So um, I'm here, guys, I'm here. Um, um, but um, the telemedicine platform, I, I, I won't say that directly impacted my clinical care. Um, I was able to see my oncologist, you know, virtually um, during a few appointments, but I can say that COVID impacted care as far as like support sometimes where you're only able to have maybe, you know, one support person, your, your partner, or when I know when I had my biopsy done, my husband was not allowed um, to be at my bedside with during the, the biopsy procedure, which was 
pretty traumatizing for me. And it really opened my eyes to, okay, this is how patients feel. You know, I, I'm on the other side, you know, as an HCP, but now I have that dual perspective of how patients feel and it's a whole new world. And I can certainly say that it has improved my clinical acumen because now I'm more understanding and I understand what patients are also feeling. It's kind of like, you know, um, I'll make the, the analogy, whereas, you know, as, as a clinician, I never really understood why parents would be overacting in the middle of the night, they're bringing the kids in the ER with a paper cut, and I'm like, calm down, it's okay. But when I had my own child, I understood why. <laughs> I understood why. In the grand scheme of things, it may look very astronomical to me, but you know, or minor to me, but when you're going through it, it's astronomical. And you just want to be heard. You just want to know that, okay, I'm being addressed and reassured. And so I also know as far as, a, you know, the clinical trials and the impact of COVID, um, you know, I, I don't think that um, that also personally impacted me as far as COVID is related. I was just never asked to be a part of a clinical trial. I had to advocate for myself to be a part of a clinical trial. I had to find my own clinical trials. I had to fire my first oncologist because he never even considered a clinical trial with me. Never considered giving me life-saving immunotherapy that was new for my disease set. So those are some other barriers that I faced and I know where my clinical trial center is here at MedStar Georgetown, um, it's about 45 minutes from my house. So, you know, th there are areas where, you know, it's not in close proximity and, you know, gas and childcare and having to pay for parking that's not offered or having to pay for lunch while you're there half the day that are not offered from those sites. Those are all barriers that, that are still existing. And, and I know I personally asked the center, like what, what ramifications are being set in place for people who are me, uh, like me in, in those uh, clinical trials, and there are no, there were no provisions available. But I'm blessed in the aspect where I was still able to participate, but I recognize there are so many people who are not, and it still created a hindrance for me. So we definitely have work, more work to do, and I appreciate Walgreens being able to recognize those barriers and to put and trying to actively put forth resources to help uh, people to be more participants in clinical trials because clinical trials save lives. This is how we get innovative medication. This is how we're able to know, okay, this medication didn't work and this one does. This is the placebo effect or this is not. So it's very important that we have more and more clinical trials and engage the diversity pathways of having clinical trials. So I want to move to the next topic of returning data to patients. This is a hot topic, um, and we definitely have differences of opinions, and I want to allow ample time to cover this. You know, during clinical trials, there's a lot of data that is collected, or PHI. You have lab work, you have just family social history, all of these different data. And so I really want each of the panelists to speak to what are your thoughts about receiving your data, you know, and if you do think you should re receive data, do you think that sh someone should share that data with you or talk you through it, or do you want to just receive the data and understand it on your own? So I want to start with you, Chris. So data is extremely important, important to me. Um, I have 10 different chronic illnesses, if not more. And 
I have found that it's important for me to educate myself about my, my illnesses so that I can better navigate my situation with all of my doctors. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly asking information about my labs and then researching what these labs mean. So with respect to a clinical trial, my clinical trial, I specifically asked for data. I asked for an explanation. I don't think that was part of the uh, protocol for the clinical trial, um, but I used my, my resources, my voice, to make sure that I received that data. It's important to receive data because you need to know what's going on in your body. It's ultimately your body, your decision about what occurs in your body. You know, with clinical trials, you have the opportunity to withdraw from a clinical trial, but it's important that, it's important that um, data be shared with the patient so that they understand whether or not they're seeing any differences, if not, or whether or not um, there are any changes in their, in their bodies, in their blood work. And so I advocate for anyone to participate in clinical trials and receive that data. Um, I used to work for a clinical research org organization that specialized in decentralized trials. And one of the components of that program were to educate patients on the clinical trials uh, and what was happening to their body. And so I've always, even though I'm not with that company anymore, I've always strived to make sure that, that um, anytime I'm discussing clinical trials uh, to the patients I talk to, and I do advocate and speak to patients about clinical trials in the lupus community, I feel that it's important to emphasize the importance of being engaged in your own clinical trial process. I'm gonna ask you, Katie. Yes, so my relationship with statistics and data started in college and it didn't start very well. <laughs> Barely uh, passed that class. Um, and I've always found myself in the small margin. So I was told there was a less than 2% chance that it would spread, it did. They told me once there was a less than 2% chance I'd get a hematoma, I've had three. And so for me, statistics, um, I think that so somebody always has to fall in that 2%. So I don't put too much stock in statistics, uh, but I also understand their value and that as researchers, they're very important. So please continue to look at the data. But what's been interesting for me is that nobody has ever offered me data on any of the trials I've participated in. And I haven't sought it out. I actually have never Googled my disease. Um, and some people think that that's very naive, but that's something that I do to protect myself. And some people want all the information and some people want limited information and neither one is right or wrong, uh, but every patient is different. So I think if someone were to come back at me now and say, do you want to know what happened to that trial you participated at Sloan Kettering in 2015, I would be like, yeah, it would be interesting to see. Um, but I think the point is that it's just I've never thought to ask, and nobody has ever offered me that. So I'm okay with it. Um, I think my dad would probably be more interested in seeing it, uh, seeing the results. Um, but for me, I just think I'm an individual and... You know, I can know what the numbers look like, but we just never know where we're going to fall. Thank you. So I saved you for last, Latoya, because you have a very interesting story, and I'll just be transparent. The first time I heard this story, I was tearing up. Um, 
because I see, I feel like I could have been in your shoes because we're so close in age and just the experiences. So if you feel comfortable, please share your story. Absolutely. So I, um, <clears throat> it, it's the answer to this question is, is twofold. So um, the first part of the question with, with Ebony is relating to is how the nature of the data that I received, meaning how I found out about my cancer diagnosis. So the cancer diagnosis was actually revealed to me via text message in the patient portal alert. I was at work. Um, I was actually um, doing the laceration on the patient's face, or, and I got alerted on my phone that my pathology report was available, but the prior week I was told that my biopsy results would be uh, discussed to me via phone. I would receive a phone call. That phone call never happened before I received the patient portal alert. And so I found out that I had triple negative invasive ductal carcinoma, high grade three, from reading the text message. So um, it's not something, I don't wish on my worst enemy, it is something that is very devastating and no one should ever find out that they have cancer or a life-changing disease like HIV cancer through a, a phone notification. So, um, and I had a very hard time trying to get in touch with the physicians that day. I was able to speak to a nurse in line on call and I um, did not receive a message, I did not receive a phone call actually till the next morning from a radiologist who basically, because I, I, I was in shock, I did not expect to receive these results. I really thought that this was gonna just, I was misdiagnosed originally. So I was, I was diagnosed as having a galactosil or a benign milk cyst because I had just stopped breastfeeding my daughter at the time. I had three babies and my, my youngest was just, just a year old at the time. So I was misdiagnosed originally. So I go from being misdiagnosed to um, actually receiving cancer diagnosis results via phone and via um, a phone text message. So the results to me that following morning when a, a physician actually called me, it was, you know, basically I'm asking them, is this really mine? Is this really my report? Because I was in shock. I really thought the lab had made an error and this, has, this cannot be me. This, I, has, I see my name, I see my date of birth, but this, this is the wrong specimen. Y'all, someone messed up somewhere. <laughs> and so um, he was very nonchalant, very dry, said, yes, you know, this is, you know, this is yours, this is your report. You have triple negative and someone will be in touch with you. The nurse navigator will be in touch with you. Not, I'm sorry, not, I'm so sorry you found that in nature. It just very, um, lacked so much compassion. Lacked so much compassion. And I felt at that point the beginning of the, the stab in my back because I'm like, how could this be someone, I'm not saying that I should be given any, uh, you know, higher level of care as being a healthcare provider. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that I sacrificed so many years of my life studying medicine and taking care of patients on the front line during COVID in the ER, just returning from maternity leave with a three-month-old at the time, to be stabbed in the back where I cannot be called <laughs> to be relayed this, this, this life-changing diagnosis or to be called in to be counseled. And so that was the beginning of feeling like I was stabbed in the back with uh, medicine because you have that catapulted by not being offered um, immunotherapy, which was diagnosed for triple negative the same day that I got diagnosed 
none of these things were ever offered to me never offered a clinical trial. And it's very scary because had I not have my medical background, there's so many people who have triple negative who don't have medical backgrounds to know to ask, to ask these specific questions. So it's very, it, 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 it made me realize so early in my diagnosis that, okay, this is not just about you anymore. You're a patient advocate, whether you like it or not, because now you have to try to pave the way and change the way. Because I, I, I could not, I could not sit on that information with knowing that I could potentially share my story and try to advocate to help other women not have to go through a find out in this way and so many other different barriers and challenges that I face. So what I, what it taught me is, is that at the end of the day, unfortunately, you know. Sometimes medical biases, implicit biases, and systemic medical racism, it doesn't care about your credentials. At the end of the day, I felt like, okay, I'm still a black woman. And so that's how, that's how I really felt. And that's how I was treated. And, it was, and I received this directly. It was not indirectly. When I asked my physician why I did not receive immunotherapy, and I found out about it during the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, because um, you know, I uh, wanted to stay abreast of certain information, but I was trying not to stay so deep into the stats and pulling stats and treatment regimens online because it wasn't good for my mental health at that time. Because I was reading so many bad, um, you know, uh, uh, outcomes, and I was like, nope, this is not going to be me. So I, 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 I stayed away from reading so much clinical literature because I needed to preserve my mental health. And I started blaming myself initially because I didn't, I was like, how can I not have known about this immunotherapy all this time? And when I finally found out about it, I, I, I confronted my oncologist and he turns his screen to me and he says, well, it just wasn't on my, 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 my checklist. So that's why you didn't get it. He was fired that same day. He was fired that same day. And so I found another oncologist and I, during this time, I had been seeking clinical trials. I would go into clinicaltrials.gov and find information. And, and just navigating through that as a medical professional is somewhat challenging. So I can't imagine some, you know, the lay community trying to navigate through that. And that's the reason why I'm so glad, like, Ricky Fairley has, you know, developed a website when we trial to, you know, to help women who look like me navigate through this and be partnered with clinical trials. Um, in their area for their disease. So when I enrolled in a clinical trial, I went into it with a CT DNA testing um, that my, my body, my uh, clinical trial is studying CT DNA for patients who are post mastectomy who had minimal residual disease at the time of surgery. And the one thing I, I did not I don't like is that I went into it with knowing that I would receive ongoing clinical data, and it was like I received a baseline CT DNA, which was negative. I received the Q3 weeks of my labs and having the physical exams, all of that is transparent. But when it came to the study trial data, none of that is released to me. And when I asked about it towards the latter part of my trial, it was, well, you know, this is still be, I understand that there's a process and that it's still being studied and, and this data won't be released for years to come, but why am I not receiving my ongoing CTDNA results? And so I feel like not having that information presented to me earlier on, it does not work too much in favor for someone of uh, you know African American background because we have so much medical. So many of us have medical mistrust still, 
And so when you're not told that you're gonna not receive an ongoing data, that may add to, okay, what are you trying to hide? So you need to let me know that upfront that I'm not gonna receive all of my data and that only limited data will be available to me. So those are some of the things that we should, you know, definitely work on for clinical trial participants. Thank you, Latoya. So in the last few minutes, you know, I just wanna talk about the efforts you all are doing and really paying it forward. As you said, you're not only an advocate, an advocate for yourself, but an advocate for others and that you really are pushing the needle forward in sharing education, sharing about clinical trials, building up that trust that many in the community does not have when we think about clinical trials and healthcare system because you talked about some of the barriers, the mistrust, the lack of communication, the lack of just being a genuine human, you know? So first I'm gonna start with you, Chris, if you can talk a little bit about your efforts that you are doing both with the Lupus Foundation of America and the Lupus Research Alliance and to talk a little bit about project change. So I, so I have been involved in uh, numerous projects uh, related to increasing minority participation in clinical trials. Um, one of the projects that I specifically worked on is just uh, speaking to patients uh, through the Lupus Foundation of America Georgia chapter where I live and talking to them about the importance of clinical trials. So I'll attend workshops or attend support group meetings and just impart my knowledge to patients from the patient's perspective. Um, in addition to that, I've worked uh, with uh, the American College of Rheumatology in, in developing materials to educate both doctors and patients about clinical trials. Um, that project is, has moved forward and is now being used um, in a second phase where it's actually being used in a practical standpoint. Um, and then I'm working with the Lupus Research Alliance and Project Change, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, project that I'm working on where we're doing the same, some of the same things where we're trying to develop materials, develop information for patients so patients are better understand the importance of clinical trials. We're doing everything from marketing to research. And we're right now with Project Change, we're trying to find our specific um, clinical sites that we want to work with, um, which um, there are plenty around the country, plenty around the country. Um, but it's an amazing project that I'm working on, um, and it's important uh, to educate patients and doctors. Um, and then finally, I worked on a, a project with the University of Alabama um, doing some of the same things, educating patients about clinical trials, having actual discussions with patients about clinical trials and their experience. Um, each patient was required to go through a, a series of modules to educate themselves about clinical trials uh, based on information from Northwestern University and materials from Northwestern University. And out of that, patients really began to understand a little bit more about the process itself and became more comfortable. And, and mind you, these are patients who are African-American and live with lupus. And so um, one thing I, I should say specific to lupus and one of the re more important things that really brought me into clinical trials is that 
Only 3% of African Americans participated in the enlisted clinical trials 12, 12 years ago. 3% when African Americans make up 43% of the lupus population in this country. That, that one, those who are with the FDA will understand that it barely, barely passed phase two trials. It barely passed that. And it's now being used pretty readily in the, in the lupus community now that it's been passed. So changes need to be made, definitely made. Um, we need to have more conversations with doctors. Doctors need to be knowledgeable because doctors, doctors particularly for African-American patients, they're not talking to patients about clinical trials. Out of my 10 chronic illnesses, not once has a doctor approached me about clinical trials. Not once in the last uh, 32 years that I've lived with lupus, not one doctor. So it's important that we include the doctors in this process. It's important that we educate through projects like Project Change, through the ACR's project, through the University of Alabama's project, that we make sure we're including the patient in the discussion and including the patient, making sure the patient is knowledgeable, but also making sure that the doctor is knowledgeable about the clinical trial process and how to talk to patients about clinical trials. Thank you, Chris. I see we're out of time, um, but I just want to thank my panelists for, you know, being vulnerable and sharing your stories with this room. I know it can be very intimidating, I say, for even myself to, you know, share some of your darkest stories or just your dark, darkest thoughts with people that you do not know. And this, it's really tough. So I just appreciate you taking the time and the courage to be here today. So thank you all. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information on the Patients as Partners Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit patientsaspartnersconference.com or theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.